Welcome to this week's episode of Atlantic Tales, when we'll visit a 270-year-old forge in Mount Shannon and meet artisan blacksmith Rhys Saul Foster. We'll also hear from visual and performance artist Rachel McManus and her electrical box art project in Ennis. Rachel McManus is a visual and performance artist originally from Dublin. She's married to a Clare man, but before moving to the county almost 10 years ago, she lived in Cork for a time as well as in Canada and the United States. Rachel also worked in the fitness industry and ran her own gym. It was hard work and she eventually gave it up to pursue her passion for art. I decided I wanted to go back to what I had originally worked at, which was art, and I had been thinking about it for a long time. And when I look back, I could see why all the signs were there. Like I had this big industrial strength training gym full of paintings on the walls. I mean, I think it was when I look back, I realized <laughs> the signs were there. But I, I went back and did a master's um, starting in 2016 for three years. I did an online master's uh, because I wasn't in a position to attend one physically due to family commitments. And that was a really good kickstart to get back into contemporary art again. Then I finished that and went straight into, into COVID. So that was another education then, learning how to, trying to get jobs and make money in the middle of COVID when no one could go anywhere, obviously, as you know. And I didn't know, I don't know any artists who weren't hugely challenged at that time, you know, as were many facets of people. So I learned a lot during that. Uh, and I, I did get work. I mean, all of my work was canceled. I had to start again. I had work lined up, I had shows lined up, I had stuff going on and it all got canceled immediately. So I had to start again. But what it did kickstart for me was my performance work. And I work as a performance artist as well. And that, that really helped me work within the small parameters that we were allowed and try out new ideas and things. Um, but visually, since moving to Ennis, we first lived in Ennis town. And I would walk around a lot when I could, if I had to go anywhere. Because for me, the novelty of not having to get in the car and go and was, was lovely. So I would walk around. So I got to know the town very much on an outsider's terms. I didn't know anyone, but that really suited me yeah. because I could interact as and when I wish. Um, without like my husband who go he only goes down the street and he meets someone who who's, who's auntie's sister's cousin he used to play GA with you know that kind of way I've noticed a lot of people leave here and come back from Ennis I see it in my kids school as well a lot of people there they went to that school and then they went away and then they come back and send their kids there I find that interesting because where I am in Dublin that doesn't happen as much but before you went to working full-time in the fitness industry, had you tried to work as an artist? Or at what point were you actually working as an artist and changed tech? Yeah, I went to, I went to NCAD when I left school. I got into NCAD with my first try, and the significance of that is it wasn't an easy college to get into. It's a small college. At the time when I went there, it's the only place in Ireland you could get a degree. So it had some prestige, I suppose. I got in the first time, which being the type of 18 year old I was made me value it less because I was like, ah sure, got in there. And I, what I really wanted to do was law, but uh, I didn't even get, I'd say a quarter of the points I needed for that. So I deferred going to UCD to do arts and I went to NCAD for a year. And NCAD was an interesting place. All the creatives go there, all the creatives. So you had this mix, this wonderful mix of really people who you could see had grown up on the outskirts because they didn't really have friends and they were the oddballs but they were highly, highly talented. And then you had like fiercely ambitious people who had maybe spent three years 
um, repeatedly trying, submitting and trying to get in there and then trying again. So it was an interesting environment. Um, uh, I did graphic design in college and I did that because there's a work ethic in my family where you, you work, you work, work, work. And the only degree that was, this was possible you'd get a job in an NCAD at that time was either graphic design or potentially maybe industrial design. Looking back, I should have done fine art, but in fine art, you went straight into most of them. It was generally accepted you'd have to go on the dole, and I wasn't going doing that. So I figured I could get a graphic design degree, get a job in graphic design and, and paint, which was my, and draw, which was my, my main love around that. Now, as it turned out, I, I, I did get some design jobs. Uh, I was no good at it. I'm very good at drawing. It's very bad at design. I used to have to bring my work to my friend's design shop to get him to fix it for me. Uh, <laughs> for any commissions I got, any, any work I got. And I did that for about two years working freelance after I left college. And then I went to New York. And when I was in New York, I worked in various bars and did various small design jobs which brought me up to September the 11th. And uh, I stayed in New York for, I think, three or four more months after September the 11th. And then I came home and I retrained as a fitness instructor, thinking I would do that part-time because I was also working as an illustrator of children's educational books at the time to, to pay my way. Um, got offered a full-time job in, in fitness industry in a gym in, in Kildare. And I just went head in head first and stayed working at that then for 14 years. Did you leave New York because of 9-11 or had you planned to come home anyway? No, I left New York because I was the only person I knew who was going and coming every 90 days in order to try to get what was known as an O-1 visa at the time, which was a, a type of a visa that would allow you to get sponsorship as a creative. If you had a certain amount of companies, you needed what was called one mother company and three letters of support from other companies saying they would give you work. And this you would then use to apply for a creative O-1 visa. So I had my one big sponsor and two small sponsors. I was all set. I was working with a very nice solicitor in Manhattan and everyone else I knew was doing the normal Irish thing. Um, as in living and working there yeah. without worrying about things like visas, let's just say. And fair dues. I didn't want that. I didn't like the glass ceiling that I could see. Um, I knew my options were limited if I, if I lived that way. So I was going home every 90 days and coming back and it was, it was fine until after September the 11th. And three months after September the 11th, I had spoken to my uh, lawyer and he I was like what am I gonna do here if I go home I mightn't get back because I knew that security had clamped down significantly um, after September the 11th and uh, he said well if you stay your chances of getting your O1 are severely compromised because you're over your 90 day time if you're gonna have to take the chance so off I went home and when I was going back in they questioned why I was going back and if I had a job which I did and they decided I wasn't allowed to go back. So that was the end of that. And um, they said, you can come back in three months time and try again if you wish. But my whole job, my life, everything was in New York. And I had to make the decision to either stay or try and go back. And I didn't want to live in this state of suspension. I couldn't even get through to anyone. There was mobile phones weren't the big, a big thing then. Everything was in a state of chaos. I couldn't get through to any of my sponsors. I tried and tried on the phone. So I had to make a decision. So home I stayed got a few bits shipped back of what my flatmates could send me and abruptly restarted again. Was that very frustrating though, Rachel, because you had put so much hard work into doing everything above board yes, in New York? Yes, it was. It was ironic. And it was really, really frustrating and it was very ironic. And it was the right lesson learned for me. You know, I still wouldn't have changed it. I didn't want, there was no way I wanted to live in the way I could see other people living, which was, there was plenty good about it, but you couldn't 
if anything happened to you, if you got an accident, everywhere you went where we lived in Queens, you'd see posters for benefits for people who'd had an accident, who couldn't afford the insurance because they're illegal. Like, that's just, for me, you see, I was coming from the benefit from having grown up in a, in a middle class house where I was like, I want to live in a way where I can hold up my head and be open about what I do and not, not be scared of any recriminations because I'm not legally supposed to be here, you know? And I didn't see how I could ever progress professionally if I was in a situation where I was relying on other people to kind of protect me. So I didn't want to live in that way. So I wouldn't change I wouldn't change the way I did it. I had an incredible time there for two and a half years and I learned a lot and the biggest problem I had coming home wasn't getting work. It was how slow people walked on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Wrecked my head. <laughs> Going back to when you were younger and in school yeah. and at home, was there art at home? Was there anybody in the house who was artistic? And at what point in your life as a child or teenager did you start getting into being creative? Yeah, there was art at home. My mum was is artistic. I have memories of being very small. She used to paint murals on the wall of the house. Um, very 70s vibes of, I remember big orange, quite geometric murals. And she used to do things like paint Mr. Men on the walls and stuff. So she was highly creative. She never kind of formalized it or acknowledged it but it was there we accepted it and I was always drawing I, I could draw from an early age I remember being in school and my work being put on the wall and being known as the one who could draw but drawing is like anything you can yes yes I can draw but you also it's like I'm sure you've interviewed athletes if you don't work at it you won't get any better so being able to do it doesn't mean that you can utilize it to the extent you know yeah I work at it every day Every day I draw. So it's like a practice. So I was always drawing. I always drew in school and I always did art and uh, it was a source of great, uh, I wouldn't say it's a redeeming factor, but it was redemptive and it was cathartic because it helped me. I felt like I was good at something. And that's very, that affects your identity growing up, you know? So I wasn't very good at sport. I was always good at talking, <laughs> but I was not good at, but and that, you need to be good at talking in school, you know what I mean? You need to be able to hold your own, but I wasn't, uh, you know, so I suppose it was, it was something I identified with very much so and was part of, part of what, what, uh, who I was growing up. So even though you went into the arts for a time or working in the arts and going into a completely different job, did you always think you'd come back to the arts? No. Did you always hope that even? No, I didn't. I loved working as a fitness instructor, but it, things change as you get older and I loved the fitness industry, but I also found it to be very, like, I, I learned a lot of really important lessons there, and I worked for myself for so many years. I had jobs, and then I'd leave and work myself again, and the fitness industry was very educational because you'd have young ones going and doing three-week courses saying, oh, I'm a personal trainer now. You know, then you'd be there with your own, whatever, eight years of experience. You'd have people coming into you going, oh, well, you know, I think I, I worked with such and such a person, and you would know that they'd have very little experience. You know, I knew other trainers who would get annoyed by that, but I'd be like, well, that's up to you to, to you know show what you can do and not worry about what other people can do so it's kind of like the same and i use i use all the skills i learned in the, in the fitness industry in my art career i have a much thicker skin i am a way more objective about failure or rejection if i apply for things which i do all the time and i don't get stuff you have to remember that the people who assess your work don't know you and have have their own set of a framework that they have to adhere to and it's it's never a personal thing you know the art world is uh, like i would liken it to many 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 fish in a small pond with a few crumbs so you have to be wily and you have to be clever if you want to make any sort of a, a sort of money like if you want to actually make a career out of it it's not easy financially so rachel in your art life nowadays what are you doing most of the time i know you have the arts in terms of painting but also performance art i'm actually doing probably at this present time pat it's 70 percent visual and 30 percent performance 
but if that goes up and down, that fluctuates depending on what's going on. And one feeds the other, very much so. They feed each other. Um, I'm, doing, I'm trying to finish a project at the moment, a visual project, where I, and it's taken me way longer than I planned, I have to be honest, but it's really, really engaging work. I applied last year to get funding to make 12 portraits of, I suppose you would call them, Clare-based community shapers. And I use that terminology because they're of various ages. Most of the people who are in painting are 70 plus in years of age. And I've got 12 people. I did so by getting a newspaper article written about it and going on the radio, going on Claire FM and asking people to come forward who would like to partake in the project. Because GDPR is a delicate thing and you have to make sure that people are fully aware of what they are agreeing to. But the reason I wanted to do this is because it goes back to the walking around Ennis and getting used to the streets and getting to know Ennis on my own terms and I just felt like Ennis was absolutely crying out for some street art. Now there was already some street art when I came here and fair dues to the, to the work that was here. I love street art and I love the democracy of street art because it's for everyone and everyone and anyone can see it and can engage with it on their own terms. Whether you are small or big or old or young or can speak English or can't speak English whatever your economic means are, you're able to engage with it because it's in front of you. That's really important to me. It's not in a white cube. It's not in accessible behind a door where people might be intimidated to go in. It's there. I love putting work in quirky places where people just come across it, can choose to engage with it if they wish or not. In general, you get a hugely positive reaction. Sometimes you don't, which is also part and parcel of working outside. But these 12 people, I'm interested in what happens to people when they get older. They tend sometimes to kind of disappear and become less visible. And I like highlighting ordinariness as well. And I think sometimes ordinary lives can be the most interesting ones. So far I've done seven of these portraits. I've got five more to go. Maths aren't my strong point, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been really interesting painting them. So I visited each person. I made a, a drawings of them. Then I will use that to scale them up into a stencil. Then I'll cut the stencil out and I will fit it to the electrical box that I've chosen. Um, I'm working with Clare County Council, who kindly supplied me with the electrical boxes, which means they're all quite low down and quite close to people on the street. So they're very, it's quite intimate work. It's not up high on a wall, it's yeah. low down in front of you. So it makes it very, very different in terms of your audience who sees it. But where did the idea for this particular project first come I from? I like painting old people and they're much more interesting. Their faces are so much more interesting. They have a different ideology about what's important than younger people. You can see how they've spent their time and you can see their opinions on their faces <laughs> a lot more than younger people. Also, I spent some time when I first came to Ennis, I went to a couple of different, I went to a nursing home just purely off my own bat and asked if I could make some portraits of the residents. Uh, Molem Nursing Home yes. in Drumbiggle and I had a wonderful time doing that and then I did a similar project in St Joseph's and I would just go in and sit down and work with one of the, one of the people who was there. The staff had compiled a list because some of the people were up for it. some of the other people I drew would have been nominated by a family member so which would mean I would go in to draw them and they'd be like no I'm not I don't want my portrait done which would I would go fair enough I'm not doing it even if your family says they want it done of you if you don't want it <laughs> do. other people would have said yes and then they would have forgotten and would have fallen asleep or something. But it was brilliant. For me, it was just so interesting. And I heard stories that I would not have heard had I not been there about the way people lived 50, 60 years ago and what they'd been through and the hardship and what, like, I don't think nowadays people would be able for what was normal then. I suppose every generation says that. I find the way people age, I'm, I'm very interested in people, what people look like and how they hold themselves and how they walk and how they move. 
Like I will follow someone down the street if I think they're interesting to look at. And I'll always be doing something I shouldn't do, which is taking pictures of people. And the reason I can get away with that now is because everyone has their phone on them all the time and is looking at it. So I can um, discreetly take pictures, which I do delete after, because I'm constantly, I'm so interested in how people engage with the world and what they look like and how they hold themselves. So I would happily spend, like one of my favorite places to go and sit in a shopping center and watch people walk past or sit or stand and the way men stand as opposed to women, yeah. the way women hold themselves and the way men take up more space and the way women can be sometimes slightly apologetic in how they move, so interesting. So, and the way kids move in a, in a free way that we, we lose as we get older. So I'm just endlessly interested in how people move and stand. And I'm interested socially in how older people tend to retreat from the forefront of what's around us visibly as they get older. And I wanted to kind of reinsert some of the older people for Menace and Claire back into the open so that they, in their own way, could re-engage with the public in a kind of slightly passive but also in a quite a quirky, joyful way. So that's kind of what it's about. We'll walk down, Rachel, if we can, have a look. And thank you, first of all, for coming out. Minus three degrees. Oh, no bother. <laughs> yeah, well, as I say, it's not raining, so... But exactly. <laughs> so the weather, does that affect... Dominates us? my work. <laughs> of course. You're working on a project. Well, the particular element of the project is here at the top of O'Connor Street. So this is number seven of 12. Who are you working on here today, so, Rachel? Uh, this particular um, person is called Bernie and she lives in Ennis um, and I met with her before Christmas and uh, she graciously had me into her house and we had a great great laugh and I made some drawings of her and that's what I used to base the portrait on. I took photographs of her as reference but I will make a drawing and that the drawing will be my basis for the portraits. So all these portraits are based on drawings I have made so it's like a you meet the person you make the drawings I will take some photographs for darkness and lightness references and just for scale but then I will use the drawing I've made to make a stencil and then the stencil I will cut out and I will spray the stencil onto the electrical box and then I will use that as my kind of base layer to paint over in terms of getting perspective right. It's the quickest way to work and it minimizes the time you're outside doing preparatory work. You can do a lot of it indoors then because my biggest problem is the weather and the rain. Uh, if you were painting on a wall, for example, I, w I did a lot of painting last summer and I managed to get it all done despite the rain because I was painting on walls and walls are porous and the paint soaks into the walls quite quickly. So even if you have a light shower, you can usually continue working if you're working with spray paint. But if you're working on an electrical box, electrical boxes are not porous. They are made of metal and the, wall, the paint will slide straight off again if it rains, which I have learned to my detriment. So it's easier <laughs> for you to sit on your lovely turquoise stool yes. at minus three degrees <laughs> yes. than in the rain. Yes. Oh yeah, it's 100% because it's not raining. So when I saw the forecast for this week and last week, I was like, woohoo, I'll get at least two to three portraits done because it's entirely dependent on the weather. Yeah. So I just put on my headphones, I work away, I get asked the same questions every day. I get asked, are you an artist? As I sit there <laughs> painting and I go, yes. And I go, and then I, the next question I get asked every day, at least three times is, is someone paying you for that? People ask me that and I'm, I always say, no, I do it from the charity of my heart. No, I don't. <laughs> I have to yeah. laugh, people. But you it, engage with people because you I are do, curious. I do engage because I'm conscious of the fact that, again, I'm on the street. If they feel that they can ask, because I, I do realize that for every person who asks, probably 10 don't. But some people will stop and ask questions. And I think, you know, in, in general, I will always stop and make an effort to speak to them. But I do put my headphones on because I find that um, you could be stopped, you know, so often that you'll get no work done. Yeah. But in general, people are lovely and very nice. First time ever I 
I think of the 12 people who are featured in this project, two of them I approached myself because I, I knew of them. And the reason I approached them was because I thought they had interesting faces. That is literally the only reason why. The other ones were people who came forward via the newspaper article that was in the Clare Champion about the project and via the interview I did for Clare FM. And people heard that and were invited to contact me, which they did. So 10 of the 12 were people who put themselves forward or a family member did because five of the people who are in the project are deceased and family members put them forward. So it's been really interesting engaging with the people who put, came forward and engaging with the families who put people forward and the reasons why they did it. One thing that I thought was interesting was the men, I have six men and six women, and the men who came forward themselves felt like they had led interesting lives in a modest way, but had made something of their lives and therefore were worthy of being portrayed. Even though I did try to explain that you didn't have to have done anything, you yeah. know, as such any feats of grandeur. And I knew, I anticipated and I was right that the, the women who came forward were universally concerned that they weren't interesting or, or useful or exciting enough to be in the project. And they were like, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like this done, but I don't know if, I'm, if I've had a very interesting life, you know, or if, if I'm worth being on the walls. So, and it was kind of, um, to me, that's kind of significant in terms of the, the age profile of the people. When they grew up, a lot of women would have probably more so been housewives and less so maybe have had a career. Therefore, they didn't deem their lives to be that interesting. So I have a, a lovely cross-section of different people who've, who've done different things in their lives. But as I said to them, what you might think interesting or not interesting, you know, you might think your life isn't interesting. Other people might find it fascinating. So who's to say whose life was interesting yeah. or not? As far as I'm concerned, everyone's life is interesting. The, the people who've had their portraits done so far have been generally positive about it. There's always an element when you're, when you're making portraits of people, there's always an element that they won't like it. I had a situation several times in St. Joseph's Hospital, for example, when I made portraits of some of the residents and they declared that they looked too old in them. So I had to redo them, you know, and fair enough. Yeah. The, they didn't like what I presented to them. I suppose the difference between a portrait and a photograph is a portrait is what someone sees of you and then how they choose to render what they see. It's very, very different from a photograph. A photograph is a photographic image of, you know, the reflected light of someone. Whereas a portrait is a, an interpretation. That's how I would put a, well, explain what a portrait is. It's a very, very different thing. So it's someone's visual interpretation of someone else. It is not a lifelike exact copy of someone. So there will be elements there that could be recognizable, perhaps, or maybe not. Yeah. Um, and I have to really explain that to people so they understand that. But they are quite figurative, they are quite realistic, because that's the style I chose to work in. I have tried to be quite consistent with the style. All the portraits are done in black and white with a colored background. Um, I work in quite a graphic style and I, that suits the medium of the um, acrylic outdoor paint I have to use on these steel electrical boxes. Like it's not a kind of a soft, easy, watercolory medium. It's quite a strong, opaque type of paint that you have to use. So you have to work, use it in a certain way. Like I love driving down the street and then I'll see it in, in the evening and how it looks and um, seeing um, how, how it looks at different times of the day and I try to think about who I'm putting where in terms of the environment is it on a busy street is it on a quiet street is it down a lane 
what portrait am I going to put there and how will it look and what colours will I use in terms of the surroundings and what's going to work there. So I try not to make it sit out like a sore thumb. I want it to kind of become part of the landscape as such. But I also want it to be visible and be there and be like, look, I'm here. I deserve to be here. I have the right to be here as well, if that kind of makes sense. Claire Arts have sponsored this work and they are wonderful, I have to say. Shout out to them. I'm always going to Siobhan and Claire Arts with Madcap Ideas and she's very supportive and always has been and will do her utmost to try to facilitate my mental ideas and so if I say Siobhan I want to go and paint you know all these portraits of people in Ennis she will sit down and talk about the practicalities of what's involved in that and remind me about GDPR and, and get me to properly kind of um, think it through so she's a great support to me and a lot of other artists uh, I think street art works for them when done properly because they get a lovely response from the community because it's, it's an immediate tangible outcome for them and the agreement I have with them is that I will keep maintenance of the work for a two year period I mean I've worked now that's three to four years old in Annis and it's still holding up really well it's lovely to go around and see it I've learned if you use good quality materials the, the work should last yes work has been vandalised and you have to kind of remember like when I paint a piece of work it doesn't belong to me anymore it's painted on electrical boxes or walls that are owned and maintained by the county council and most of the work I've, I've done of this public work is sponsored by Claire Arts so it's paid by people's taxes so it's not owned by me per se anymore it's owned by the people it's outdoor work it's street work it belongs to everyone 99.9% .9 of the people would not consider interfering with it, but there's always a small percent who will. Coming up, we travel east to Mount Shannon on the shores of Loch Derg to meet an artisan blacksmith working from a 270-year-old forge. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Already today, we spent a morning on the streets of Venice with artist Rachel McManus. Next, we travel east to the picturesque lakeside village of Mount Shannon. Rhys Saul Foster is from New Quay in Cornwall on the English southwest coast. He knew from a young age that he had a creative streak, but didn't pursue it at the time. It was after Rhys moved to Ireland that he took up blacksmithing and today works from a forge that dates back 270 years. I say it's either a breakdown or a breakthrough, but I like the idea of a breakthrough. <laughs> it sounds a lot nicer. But I, I got into it after a difficult period in my life. Absolutely fell in love with it. Was quite good at it. I'd always liked the idea of blacksmithing because I liked the use of all of the elements. Uh, the fire, the, the coal the water and the bellows and I'm blessed enough to work in a 270 year old forge where I have a choice of working with bellows which are a hundred years old themselves uh, from France originally. Blacksmithing at home in Cornwall is that something that happened in your town or your area or had that tradition died out? Unfortunately a lot of Cornish tradition has died out. I wasn't able to ever study my own language. A lot of the music and culture has been lost to time and a lot of the Cornish heritage fishing is being destroyed so uh, unfortunately I wasn't really able to take down any traditional sort of roots but I had an understanding of the craft and have always really respected heritage because of my loss of it from Cornwall. That really spurred me on to understand loads of different heritage crafts. I, I originally went into stonemasonry in Ireland when I moved uh, because I wanted to understand some of the heritage craft and I 
didn't know whether I'd be able to be involved with blacksmithing at all until I found out about a college in Limerick in Capamont, which does free courses for a year for two days a week. But why that particular course then? It's hard to place exactly why I did it. Uh, it really called out to me. Sorry to sound fluffy. It really called out to me and felt like it chose me as much as I chose it. It was something that I thought I needed to do, something I really felt drawn to do, and inevitably something that I've picked up and now have quite a following on my own Instagram. <laughs> yes, you're very active on social media, particularly on Instagram and your passion comes out in that because mm. you're always smiling, always laughing, always enjoying it. Tell me then, Reese, about this building here. This okay. has a lot of history. There's history oozing out of the oh, walls here. Incredible amounts of history. There's stories from so many people in the town that I couldn't even list all of them, but some of them are of people dipping their hands and feet in the water trough to get rid of warts. There was children who are now uh, the elderly folk around the town who remember leaning on the windowsill of the forge, chatting to Tom Lyons in the morning as he shooed horses. There's stories as well of uh, people from other countries visiting whilst Tom was working here at the time and he'd be shooing horses and people would be amazed because they'd never seen hot shoeing before or shoeing a horse before. And they'd go up to the town and they'd come back and they'd see Tom Lyons cutting somebody's hair. <laughs> so it was this hugely social hub within the town where people would visit, come along, uh, find out what events are going on, uh, where the turf fields are being cut next. There's a huge amount of social and uh, community-led sort of focus on the forge. Not just that, but I remember being told that they found pikes or pike heads from the back of the forge from when the Irish would have risen up against the British in World War II for conscription. Um, and historically, people would have made pikes and you know it would have been very frowned upon and there would be a lot of punishment for it. But they found uh, the pike heads at the back of the forge where possibly <laughs> they would have made them uh, to fight against the British. And how did you become aware of the building? Because if you drive past it, it looks like a normal cottage. Mm. There's much more to it than that. Sure, well I have a bit of a nose for buildings. Um, as a stonemason I'd be looking around for stone walls and I'd look at old buildings and I, I, I'd look and I started asking questions about this building originally about two years ago. What is that? And people would tell me it's a forge, an old forge. Uh, but I didn't know much at the time and as I started studying blacksmithing I knew that I needed to get a forge and get up and running but I didn't have enough money at the time to do that. So during almost the end of my course there uh, I started inquiring to a fellow called Mark Wilson which was working here before myself um, and he introduced me to the forge he said you can work here a couple of days a week if you'd like and so I did I started working here and yeah he really liked me working here I started finding more history about the forge and I started talking to the Lyons family who owned the forge and they were okay with me working here full time. And what exactly then was available to you in the forge or is available to you now? Did you have to do much work yourself or would there have been remnants of the old forge here? So there was a largely what I have done is not touched a lot of things. I tried to keep as much original as possible. The only thing I had to do was repair the flue because it was dangerous to my own life if I were to work here full time. So I used traditional lime pointing methods using clay, sand and lime to repair the fireplace 
and soon enough I'll be working with Clare Heritage Council. They will be coming here and I will be talking to heritage architects on how I can line point and repair the door of the whole forge uh, this year. So you want to protect the structure, retain the history that's within it. You're keeping the story of the forge alive, mm. but the whole heritage of the building and how it relates to the village, that's important to you, that's maintained. Mm. Absolutely, it's hugely important. So not only is this a historical place that requires respect and almost demands it, but also it's such a communal hub and there's not many places here in the world even where communal hubs are anymore where outside of other spaces people would gather and meet and socialize and talk and share and it's nice to be able to create a space where people can come people can be friendly have nice chats and to be able to bring people together just to be able to keep the tradition of the blacksmith's shop alive What about the bellows? Is this something that was in the building when you moved in? Yes, absolutely. So they've been here for the past hundred years. Uh, they were ordered from France a long, long time ago, and they're still fully functional to this day. They've been patched up a lot. Uh, I've patched a few holes up myself, and uh, there's a few at the back which are repaired with old boots, cowboy <laughs> boots. <laughs> so um, in and of itself, the bellows even though it has history, it has even more history with its own repairs. In the back of the fireplace, I'm just after spotting what looks yes. like either a little glass door or a glass window. Mm -hmm. What's that? that? That's interesting. So there's a fire door back there uh, that was placed in there so the smoke didn't go into the other room. But originally, when the forge was being used, it would be used to make cartwheels as well as shoe horses. And so that hole there was to pass long elongated bits of metal through uh, to be able to feed it into the fire and uh, bend it and shape it to whichever way the blacksmith needed from another person on the other side of the wall. Moving in here then, Reese yourself, some equipment available to you, but what did you have to do then to mm. get your work underway? So um, I've been very gifted in that I have very generous people around me who've been um, willing and able to support me to the best of their ability. Mark Wilson, for instance, lended me uh, hammers that I've uh, been using at the very beginning. A friend of mine, Gwillem, who I'm going to be doing a box iron hammer project with, forged me my first hammer, my first blacksmith hammer uh, that was a gift to me. The tongs that I use are tongs that I forged myself or with friends and the other tools available to me, the anvil and the fire, were already here. So really the, the most the blacksmith needs are tongs, a hammer and an anvil and with that the blacksmith can make his own tools and I've started making my own tools. So for instance I made this pair of pliers, um, it's a box joint pliers which is a very difficult thing to do as a blacksmith. Uh, you usually see them factory made uh, because there's usually a hinge uh, plate which doesn't coincide with two sides, instead it's only covered on one uh, on the general tongs, but these pliers uh, I could be the only person in Ireland making these. So I make my more decorative sort of pliers. I've started to make hammers. I'd like to start making axes. So any tool I need, I can really forge myself. The fire itself, it's a big open area, but what kind of coal do you have to use a special kind of coal for? It's just normal coal that I can get uh, as accessibly as possible really. So it continues to burn and allows me to forge throughout the day. 
something that won't spark is best. Something that'll sort of keep on going with the bellows. And the bellows are fantastic. They, they end up like filling up very, very quickly, especially since I've fixed them and the fire gets going in no time. And as long as I'm pulling the bellows, the fire will continue to burn. And what kind of heat are you getting or what kind of heat do you need for the work you're doing? Oh, it really depends on the job I'm doing. So if I'm making a hammer, I need to get the metal white hot if it's bog iron. Uh, so you're looking at 1,200, 1,300. Smaller jobs, I can go lower. So it entirely depends from job to job and piece to piece. You want to be working with different colours at different times. So with finishing a project, you'd be working with reds and greys. With shaping a project, you'd be working with oranges. Um, with forging and shaping, you'd be working with yellows and whites. Uh, and with fire welding, which is a specific technique to us blacksmiths, you'd be working with white, wet and sparkling. You always had the interest and you knew you wanted to do this, but is this something you can teach yourself or how did you educate yourself about forging and blacksmithing? I would have been able to teach myself, but I would never recommend it to somebody who's serious about blacksmithing. If you're a hobbyist blacksmith, do what you want. I'd entirely condone that. But if you're serious about blacksmithing, take a course. There's a free course in Capamore that I took part in for a year. It's called City and Guilds, and uh, you have to do City and Guilds qualifications to get higher qualifications uh, later on if you want to be even more serious and go to somewhere like Hereford College in England uh, which would be a high level of blacksmithing now. And when you're starting out what do you start making as an easy beginner project for example? Well you don't even start with projects you start with techniques uh, so uh, for me um, when I started uh, I actually started on horseshoes which are the most easily and readily available so what I did was I got horseshoes I learned how to straighten metal and then I learned how to shape it so first I learned how to shape it into a rectangle then I learned how to shape it into an accurate square bar within the millimeter and then later on then I learned how to make round bar as accurately as possible within the millimeter and then once you start understanding that you start understanding how to do that with a rectangle bar so you start making points you start making diamond tapers you start making round points um, and you start really learning the intricacies of what the material wants to do you're making hammers you're made your own thongs the uh, pliers, pliers as yeah. well what's the plan for the future then will you make items on request or mm. do you have a plan so currently uh, I'm gaining incredible traction on my social media and I make jewelry pieces I make copper coffee scoops I make loads of different items uh, so I sell smaller items of jewelry at the moment from what I can make and then later on I might take commissions but at the moment I'm going viral on social media so I have no time to take commissions at all. So part of what you're doing of course is retaining the heritage the history of this particular forge telling the story but you have to make a living is that the plan to make this your full-time job? Well this is my full-time job um, I this is my business business being still forged I've focused on creating this as part of my life um, heritage work has always been a passion and a part of my life and Mount Shannon is a beautiful place that I would love to support and encourage new people to come through and help the town grow by 
doing my own craft and hopefully later on do events like woodworking and blacksmithing combined, maybe doing uh, pole lathe turning and smelting together, seeing what people can make together and seeing how the different crafts can combine to make more artisan goods. So your skills are developing and advancing all the time, you're learning something new every day? You never stop learning until the nail hits the coffin. There's no time where I'm not learning and every new project I take on I'm pushing myself further to learn more and that's the only way you can learn. If you feel uncomfortable you're doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> and when you started out were you happy and confident that this could be your living? I have an arrogant amount of confidence, uh, truth be told, <laughs> um, verging on the, the dangerous. Um, I had a good feeling. Um, and I, I was always told by my gran, uh, do what you love, not what you slave to, you know, and my gran being one of my biggest sort of mentors in my life has given me a multitude of different sayings which have lasted me throughout my whole life. And so I did. I focused on what I loved. I focused on what I was passionate about. And I'm here now, able to make a living out of something I love. And how important is it to you, Rhys, that you're doing what you love in a building full of history rather than a shed at the back of the house? Well, I mean, it's working in what is an absolute haven to me versus working in a shed, which I would still do. Like, I, I was going down that path, but this is multitudes better. It's a dream for blacksmiths to be able to work in a place like this. And I don't take it lightly when I say that it is an absolute privilege working here in the forge and for Austin Lyons to be able to give me the privilege and for Mark Wilson to be able to guide me here it has been an invaluable gift that I will always be grateful for. And working with fire on a morning where it was minus three or minus four that must have been <laughs> cozy. Ah well you think it's cozy but my hands were freezing. Now imagine uh, working in a forge with metal all of that metal gets cold. So I walk in in the morning, my tongs are cold, my tools are cold, my handles are cold. The only thing that needs to get warm is the fire, but even the fire's cold. So, yeah. <laughs> so you start up the fire, but the fire only really generates uh, heat up to about a meter, and then anything past that, it gets freezing. So I have to wrap up well and make sure that I don't get cold. <laughs> so I've started bringing in gloves, uh, I have a nice warm hat, a thick, thick jumper and nice insulated work trousers to stay warm. My feet still do get cold so you know wrapping up with two layers of socks doesn't hurt. And can you still work in here in the height of the summer? I have to leave early. One because I want to and two because it's too hot. It's very very hot in here. I have to work on smaller projects in the summer, uh, no bigger projects or else I, I will roast to death. <laughs> Coming up, we'll be back in Mount Shannon with artisan blacksmith Reese Saul Foster, who not only loves history and heritage, but is also an award-winning storyteller. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Today we've travelled to Mount Shannon to meet artisan blacksmith Rhys Saul Foster. Originally from Cornwall on England's southwest coast, Rhys moved to Ireland and took over the 270-year-old Lion's Forge in Mount Shannon, from where he now operates his business Saul Forged. 
Rees has always had a keen interest in artisan crafts and heritage work, and blacksmithing is something for which he has long had a particular passion. His new business on the shores of Loch Derg is still fledgling, but he has big plans. I've got so many plans that my mind is, is addled. I'd like to start training courses uh, so people can come into the forge and experience a real forge for themselves. So hopefully within the next year, I'll be setting up a new fire and a new anvil and get a training course going. I'd also like to start doing art projects. I'm blessed with a creative mind that has allowed me to think outside the box. And so I will continue to plan. And so far, we're making myself, Gwilym and Alan, my two friends, are gonna be making the first bog iron hammer in Ireland in hundreds of years if our contemporaries haven't done it within the last 10. If not, a thousand years. It hasn't been done in Ireland in a long time. So we're already doing a project which nobody's ever done before. And soon enough, we'll be selling that bog iron for other creators around Ireland and outside of Ireland as well, which is a very rare and time-consuming resource. So it won't be cheap, but uh, it'll be a good start to being able to provide materials from Ireland, from our bog land, and share it with people who want to craft with their own creativity. I have to ask you about the big mound of horseshoes. What's that all about? Uh, so that would be from when Tom was working here. He'd be stripping the horseshoes down and replacing them himself. So all of these were probably made by Tom or made by somebody else and he stripped them down. So the pile has been there for as long as Tom was around, which is going onwards of 80 years old, maybe less, maybe more. So what I do with them is I make decorative items like uh, wall hangers with horse heads shaped like hearts. It looked beautiful on the wall. You obviously, Reese, have an interest in history and mm. researching and local stories, and that's important to what you do. Is that something yeah. you intend to keep doing, researching history and the history of blacksmithing as well? Absolutely. So, uh, along with other things, I'm a storyteller. So, I've done storytelling events with Norse mythology. Uh, I've went to Viking events, um, won a Viking storytelling competition at Slane, which was amazing. Got my own lovely drinking horn. <laughs> and yeah, so history's always been very interesting to me, and specifically mythology and the local history surrounding mythology. So, for instance, I've got a huge interest in blacksmithing, but also the effects that blacksmithing had in Ireland. So, as you might know, the other folk are afraid of iron. Now, I never knew like much about this, but I learned recently that apparently all blacksmiths are cursed because they took iron without asking the land, and that iron was a really sort of bad thing to strip from the land. Now, it's funny being a blacksmith saying that. It's hard for me to really comprehend why I do a job that I was cursed in. <laughs> but, um, it's very interesting seeing how it's played out societally um, in that uh, people saw that it was wrong stripping the land the way we are. And it's not great, it's not fantastic that we are building giant mines and that's why most of my steel comes reclaimed and not bought because I don't want to be buying material that I can otherwise use. That's why I use wrought iron, which is 80 to 100 years old. That's why I use steel that I find at scrapyards. And that's why I use all my copper secondhand, because I don't want to... I don't want to strip the land. I don't like the idea of that. And as a blacksmith, I need to honour the tradition. And to honour that tradition is to reuse what we already have. 
How did the storytelling come about? I've, I've always had a fair big fascination in, in mythology and as I came to Ireland I became a sword fighter. I was in a sword fighting club in Fecal doing long sword fighting with protective gear and I started uh, sewing my own clothes so I sewed uh, tunics together and got all the outfit ready to do Viking festivals. So I used my storytelling possibilities to go and try my hand at doing it myself uh, in a mead hall. So I was in a mead hall with about 150, 200 people there and they were very, very loud. <laughs> they, they would be clanging their plates and they weren't shutting up and somebody just in front of the audience told everybody, shut up, be quiet. Everybody be quiet, let this man speak. And so the audience went quiet for me. And so I told a story for about 45 minutes and afterwards I ended up winning the competition and winning a drinking horn. Good morning on this lovely frosty day by the forge and we've got a busy day coming up. We've got the heritage councillors coming down but we've also got Owen Reardon coming down to help us with the handling. How important has social media been to you? You want to get the word out there that you're mm. doing this so, and of course you want to sell items in due course as well. So connected to everything we were talking about before, I, I've always been into drama. So I, I, I used to perform when I was younger. So I have a bit of that knack uh, from when I was younger back then. Yeah, it, it's difficult. It is difficult. It's difficult to raise an audience. Uh, it's difficult to find a niche. It's difficult to see how uh, it correlates to views and to audiences and how you balance your own audience. So it's all a juggling act, really. But I have been blessed in that my Instagram has just blown up and it's life-changing knowing that I've put the work in that I've analyzed what I have myself and done it all by myself and now it's finally paying off and I can earn my own living from doing a job I love it's it's incredibly important and it's the only way I'm able to earn what I can. The upside downside to that may be that people around the world are seeing what Soul Forged is doing that in the summertime they're going to be lining up outside that door you mm. don't mind that though I've always been very sort of uh, performative. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open the forge up. I'm going to put a donations box in the forge and any tourist which wants to come in, have a peruse of my wares on the table and ask questions they can. I can always put my earplugs in. I can always tell them I can't speak at the moment. I can always hang a sign up saying blacksmith working in progress. So they can come in. They can view what I'm doing, or sometimes I can chat. So I don't mind that at all. I know when to say, no, I need to work. Yeah. And sometimes that needs to be done. There's some pieces which demand an incredible amount of attention because I'm working with different materials and different heats. Um, some heats require very little attention and some heats require all of your attention. When you're working with the higher temperatures, when you're working with a sparkling temperature, you obviously don't want to burn the bar. You want to make sure that it still looks pretty, looks nice. So you're working in a very small time frame. So some things, you know, won't require any attention at all. And some things require me to focus completely.